If you're an entrepreneur, you've worked hard to start your business. Share your story of how we can change the world with people making a difference every day by partnering with the Permaculture Podcast. Take the next step and find out more by contacting show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to my interview with Joel Salatin on farming, experience, and mastery. And that title touches broadly on the topics that you're going to hear in the conversation that follows. Of course, we begin with his biography and background as he talks about growing up on the farm. We get a bit into his education and where he got his bit of a libertarian streak. And from there, we talk about what's needed in order to become a farmer, like finding land for those of us who currently don't own a space to farm in, that we might lease, borrow, or be granted access. Then we move on to what it means to develop the experiences that are necessary to become truly good at something, and then end with how we can take our mastery of a subject and become a well-rounded, interesting human being, which gives us the opportunity to share our ideas to a wide audience so that whoever decides to engage us in conversation, professionally or otherwise, that we have something interesting and provocative to say. Let's go ahead and get into the conversation with Joel, now that I've given you this long introduction, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Joel, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to farming, and then we'll take the conversation from there. Sure. So I grew up here on the farm. My mom and dad bought this farm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia in 1961. I was just four years old at the time, so you can do the quick math and know that I'm 60. So I grew up here and always loved the farm. And, um, you know, dad was an accountant, not a CPA, but, a, you know, a, a bookkeeper, tax preparer. He always said he loved to save people taxes. Mom was a high school health and phys ed teacher. And, you know, the typical uh, off-farm jobs to pay for the farm. So, you know, by the time I came along into high school, the, the land was paid for, but it was essentially a wonderful place to grow up in. Dad was a, a visionary genius, way ahead of his time. We said he was organic before Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. And so the farm was, he was always experimenting with things, but it was, you know, it was weakened. It was what you could do, you know, you work in town and you experiment. I grew up on you know, Mother Earth News magazine and and uh, kind of libertarian economic thought. Dad was an economist by training. And I always wanted to farm, but as I got into high school and stuff, uh, I had my chicken business, I sold eggs, I had garden, I sold produce, both to neighbors, people at church, supplied a couple schools, a couple restaurants, and sold on the curb market, which was an old precursor to today's farmer's market. It was a holdover from the Depression. And by the time I came on in my teens, it was down to uh, two elderly matrons and me. And I owe a lot. If we talk about mentoring, those two elderly matrons, one sold um, baked goods and the best potato salad in the world, and the other one uh, was a more general homestead, you know, cured pork, baked goods, produce, that sort of thing. And I came in with produce dairy. We were milking a couple Guernsey cows at the time, so I sold you know, yogurt, cottage cheese, butter, buttermilk, and of course all of our, our meats. I had my chickens and eggs and that sort of thing. So we, we complimented each other, the three of us, and I spent you know every single Saturday morning, 6 a.m., I was down every Saturday morning of the year. It was a year-round market inside, 
and the three of us would sell. This was the early 70s. This was before, you know, the, the kind of the local food, the organic uh, thing came along. And yet it was so formative for my, you know, ability to market, interact with people, tell stories, and they shepherded me. And I, I still believe that I probably extended their life at that market by a few years having this young uh, whippersnapper come in and and uh looking back now you know i can just only imagine the twinkle in their eye to you know to watch this 15 16 year old join them in this direct market venture is very very powerful and so from there and those early days running this kind of a polyculture approach to products in the market and what you were growing on the farm did you decide at that time you were going to be a farmer? I understand that you went off to college at Bob Jones University. Were you interested in studying agriculture at that time, or did you go off in another direction for a while? I absolutely wanted to be a farmer, but I didn't see a pathway in at the time to actually make a, make a full-time living from a farm. We, we were essentially, you know, we were growing our own food and raising enough beef, I guess, selling at the local auction barn to pay the taxes. But we were not making a living from the farm. But I had wonderful foundations with, you know, dads you know, with the electric fencing. And, of course, I was reading about permaculture. I was reading about holistic management. I was, we were there in, in spirit, but the farm was very poor in fertility, worn out. I mean, I remember walking all of it as a child and never setting foot on a piece of vegetation. It was just, it was a, a hard scrabble, worn out, gullied place. And so as I got into my late teens and started thinking about, well, what can I do? It struck me, you know, I could hand milk 10 cows, sell the milk at regular retail price, you know, not make it expensive because it's organic or grass fed or anything, just sell it at regular supermarket prices. And I could make a nice living right here milking 10 cows. There was only one problem. That was illegal. And so I've never gotten over the fact that society, that government, because of regulatory intrusion, kept me out of farming for several years. So then the idea was, well, okay, this was Watergate, you know, the Nixon era, Watergate. And I definitely had a flair for writing. I, I was working uh, part-time at the local newspaper. There again, I was mentored by these two old crusty editors that were just superb and so I got the journalism bug, and I was gifted at writing and speaking, communication. I was in debate and forensics, theater, drama, that sort of thing. And so I said, okay, well, I'll become another Woodward and Bernstein. I'll, I'll find my deep throat, you know, expose the graft, and um, write the bestseller, and then I can get back to the farm. So that was kind of the pathway. And as it turned out, the newspaper liked me and said, we got a job here waiting for you when you get out of school. And so I spent summers on the farm here trying to, you know, make progress. And then as soon as I was out of college, I went back to the newspaper, was there for, you know, a couple of years. And then uh, uh, we got married and uh, came back to the house, lived in a, an attic apartment that we made, grew all of our own food. We never went out to eat. We didn't, you know, we didn't grow it. We didn't eat it. We had our own uh, wood for heat. This was during uh, the Arab oil embargo, the wood stove craze era. So we had our own heat. We had our own food. Teresa was a you know, gifted home economist seamstress. So you know she canned. We put up. We made clothes or fixed clothes. We could buy at the thrift store. The point is we were able to live on 
you know, on, on a few hundred dollars a month, you know, I think $300 a month there for, for some time. And Shepard, the, the little nest egg that we developed when I was, you know, when we were working out, and with the little nest egg and living cheaply, we were able to squeak by for a couple of years, and then things started to started to come around. We, you know, we, we reinstituted the direct marketing. We, we started in with the chickens, and the combination of living cheaply and direct marketing allowed us to stretch. And within, oh, three or four years, we were doing quite well. Not rich by any means, but it was, you know, it was, it was past the hand to mouth, and we actually looked at each other and said, I think we're going to make it. And that took close to five years. And do you still see that kind of path as a model for people who are interested in farming? To live cheaply for a while? To work another job off-site while they build up their farm and their land and their infrastructure? Or do you think that getting involved in farming now takes a different approach? That's still a path that I recommend. I've just finished a new book, uh, Your Successful Farm Business, which is it's kind of a, a graduate, I call it a graduate or doctorate level to the original You Can Farm, which is the most eclectic, you know, starting out uh, book that I've done, and by far and away the best seller. And this is kind of a sequel to that. It doesn't repeat anything. It's just a sequel. And I have a chapter in there, uh, one of the principles is live frugally. If you have to live in a yurt or a teepee or an RV camper, do that. But along with that is make your jump early. You know, don't wait till your 40s or 50s or whatever. If you need to just put your nose to the grindstone at your work and build up a bit of a nest egg, I say you need to, you need to have enough that you can actually live on for a year without any outside income at all. And then you can devote yourself... 100% without being pulled. You know, when you're working off the farm, typically when you're at your job, you're preoccupied with all the stuff you've got to do at home. I've got to weed the green beans. I've got to, I've got to fix that fence over in the, you know, the, the northwest corner, blah, blah, blah. And so you can't really devote your attention to your farm, to your town job. And then when you're at home, you're always thinking, Oh man, I hope I'm, you know, I hope I'm putting in enough there at the office that the boss isn't thinking I'm shirking and, and not loyal to the company and blah, blah, blah. And so I think that the better pathway is put your nose to the grindstone, even take a second job if necessary. Build up a bit of a nest egg. Get out of debt. Build up a bit of a nest egg that you can live on for a year. Then make your break and you don't have to buy the land or buy the farm. You can partner with somebody. Go in put a produce operation or a pastured poultry operation or honeybees or something, put something on a friend's place, you know, that's running dairy or beef cattle or wheat or corn or whatever, and you, you can dovetail something on that other acreage so you don't have to buy it. And if you live very cheaply, you know, grow all of your own food, never go to eat, never go to a movie, no entertainment. We're talking about do you want to do this or not? And if you want to do this, there's no entertainment, no vacations, no trips, no eating out, no buying good clothes. You buy at the thrift store or, you know, wear feed sacks or whatever. The point is drop your living expenses way, 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 way down. Enjoy the place. Enjoy being rooted in your place. Get to know it. Enjoy it. Immerse yourself there. And you would be surprised what running to town, you know, one day a month, Growing all of your own food, uh, having all of your own fuel for heat, you'd be surprised how cheaply you can eat. 
uh, or how cheaply you can live. And remember, every dollar you save is worth about a dollar forty because you don't have to pay taxes on it. When you earn a dollar, you've got to pay all those taxes. But if you if you don't earn the dollar and simply substitute that with non-cash value of something that you're doing, building, making, repairing, growing, then those dollars you save are actually worth about a dollar forty because they're not taxable. And it really has a multiplicative effect on the labor that you're putting into it, how much more you get out of it by doing all that work for yourself and not having to depend on a traditional cash economy while you're building up. Yes, exactly. And what we found, the biggest surprise to us, and, and I've heard this from other people, the biggest surprise was that when we did make that break, uh, of course, all of our friends said we were stupid. Uh, you know, everybody said we were stupid. And what we found was that when we came back and we were here full time, guess what? We were here for every weed that grew in the green beans. We were here for when the blackberries, you know, were, were ripe. We were here for every cow that calved. By being here, we were able to take advantage of things that we weren't able to take advantage of before, and we were able to reduce slippage, what I call slippage. Slippage is just that regular kind of inefficiency that happens when you're either non-focused or you're, you're torn with other loyalties, other responsibilities. And so there was a, 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 just a, an exponential increase in efficiency here, even though it wasn't a big operation by any means, but because of being able to eliminate or reduce slippage, we didn't have the losses and we were able to leverage gains and opportunities that we would never have been able to do before. One of the things we did, for example, wasn't here, but you know, we had a hooked up with a guy who was planting trees. And for a couple of years in the spring, I would go and help him plant trees. And you know, when you're living on $300 a month and you get a $600 cash check for, you know, helping somebody do something, Wow, you know, that, that goes a long way. I had a, another guy I knew uh, nearby. He was going to build a, a fence. He had to put a new boundary fence, and he was going to go th- through some woods. And so, of course, he got bids from some you know local fence builders. They were going to come in with equipment, and they were going to have to cut down all the trees to get their big equipment in and all that stuff. And he was lamenting about this. You know, all the destruction and got to do the trees and they have all these tops and it's going to be all this cleanup and mess, blah, blah, blah. So let me look at it. I went over and looked at it and said, hey, you know, I, I can put this in by hand. I don't need to drill these holes. I can put them in with a post hole digger. I'm young. I'm strong. I know how to run a post hole digger. I can dig these by hand and just, you know, stick them down through here. Might have to take out one tree, you know, or something, but, but basically we can just send this right down through there, no problem. And so, uh, you know, it took me a week. To do the job, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, I put in, I don't know, 15, 16 posts in a day. But, you know, you just peck away at it. And in a week, I got it in, and, and I think it was uh, like uh, $1,800. And he saved half of what the big professional fence company was going to charge him, was going to charge him, you know, $3,600 just to put it in because the prep work, just to take the trees down and all that stuff, was going to be $3,600. And I did it for half without losing any of the trees by hand. So, you know, these are things, had I been working a town job, I never would have been able to jump on that little, you know, neighbor opportunity. But because I was here 
And because I had that time, I was able to actually consider and do that kind of community opportunity. And so I, I just think that there are a lot of things that come up serendipitously and spontaneously when we put ourselves in the habitat, in the place where we're not torn and we don't have all that tension in our lives between town and, and farm and town and farm and town and farm. It just, it really tears at us. Being calm and centered in the place where you live provides you a lot more opportunity and flexibility to take advantage of what arises? Yes. Yes, that's right. And you can never, you can never plan on what will arise, but it's being available, aware, and in the place, focused, that allows you to actually see and understand the opportunity that might fall into your lap that you would have you wouldn't even seen uh, or thought about you know prior. And with what you said earlier about access to land that you don't necessarily need to buy the farm, that's something that I appreciate hearing from someone such as yourself who's a longtime farmer and had access to land early on, because for many people I know, especially on the east and west coast, land can be very very expensive especially if we're going to be anywhere near the markets we would sell to. I know that here in central Pennsylvania, having priced this a couple times, I would have to be like an hour to an hour and a half away to get land that isn't eighty dollars or $100,000 an acre. Yet, I know some people with a hobby farm who are happy to lease off their land for $100 an acre a year or less so that they can provide an opportunity for someone to come in and start a small-scale operation on land that's already zoned for agriculture. Yes. And that opportunity is increasing by the day. The average American farmer is now almost 60 years old, just a few months shy of 60 years old. So that all the, um, you know, the ag econ guys at uh, land grant universities, uh, who I'm sure we can trust, uh, tell us that in the next 15 years, 50% of America's agricultural equity will change hands. Now, that, that's land, buildings, machinery, and, of course, knowledge, information, wisdom. And all of that's going to, they, they don't put any value on that, but just to recognize that there's, there's a lot of, there's a body of, of understanding and knowledge there that we're going to lose as well. So 60 years old, 50% will change hands in the next 15 years. So that means that there's almost unprecedented transference and disturbance in the agricultural community right now. The question is, well, where's all this equity going to go? Is it going to go into the hands of, you know, Wall Street speculators? Is it going to go into the hands of Monsanto, the Chinese? You know, who's it going to go into? And of course, I expect you agree with me on this. I would like to see it go into the hands of a new generation of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, self-starter, land-caressing entrepreneurs. And that's the dream. So how do these folks get access to that land? So we've got two ends of the spectrum. We've got people that have it that aren't using it to its full potential and people who want it who can't afford to buy it. And so actually our daughter-in-law has started a, a matchmaking website called Eager Farmer. It's all one word, eagerfarmer.com. And it's actually a vetting and matchmaking service for people who own land looking for a partner and people who are wanting to get on land looking for a partner. And the beauty of our kind of farming is that the infrastructure 
is conducive, you know, to being able to get get on a piece of land as a partner without either defacing or, or greatly changing the existing farmscape and you know, not having to buy the land. People who own the land are, are pretty, even if they're not all that involved, and they just you know, hire somebody to come in and bush hog it once a year, they still have an idea of how they want it to look, and they don't like you know, big changes and things like that. And so one of the beauties of our kind of farming and the kind of farming that Jean Martin Fortier, the gardening guru, uses that sort of thing, is that all of our infrastructure is gentle, portable, it's mobile. You know, our chicken shelters are mobile. Our electric fence is mobile. Our water troughs are more mobile for the livestock. You know, the, the shelters are mobile. We have gobbledygoes, egg mobiles, millennium feather nets, pig shade mobiles. So all the infrastructure is mobile. And when you have mobile infrastructure, you can move on to a spot. We call it farming nooks and crannies. You can move on to a spot and then if you have a falling out or the place gets sold or you want to move on or whatever, or, or you get another place, an adjunct, well, then you can move your infrastructure from place to place to place. And you don't have to have it in a, a stationary. So it's a, it's a huge savings in, you know, if you don't have to pour concrete or, or any of those things that normally people do, stationary infrastructure. Secondly, the, the infrastructure is modular. So you can add modules. Uh, you know, if you want to build a chicken house for Tyson's, first thing you got to do is build a you know half a million dollar facility. For with us, with pastured poultry, all you need to do is not go to the movies for a month, and you can build one of these little floorless field shelters. And if you like it, you can retain your profits and build another one. And if you like it even more, you can build a third. And if you're crazy like we are, you can build 150 of them. But the modular aspect allows you to add modules in the permaculture faction of growing into it, it's almost a permutation of the stacking concept. You start with something and you stack another one, stack another one, stack another one. In this case, stacking a similar one, but the modular aspect allows you to scale up or scale down, you know, without upsetting the, the apple cart. And then finally, you know, it's management intensive. So it's mobile, modular, and management intensive. So it moves from a physical infrastructure place to a non-physical people-centric place. And so I don't apologize for the fact that our kind of farming puts more people on the farm. I would much rather invest in people than concrete and tractors and buildings and energy and, and you know fans and augers and all those kinds of things. And so that moves the equity from depreciable physical infrastructure and pharmaceutical energy and capital intensity to people which are the repositories of information skill and our customers our customers that are buying this stuff so the average farm in america it takes four dollars worth of depreciable infrastructure to turn one dollar in annual gross sales so a farm that's grossing in a hundred thousand dollars a year will typically have four hundred thousand dollars in machinery and buildings and, and, and things to turn that $100,000 in annual gross sales. Our ratio here is 50 cents to one. So we have more people, I understand, so it's not, it's not all just gravy, but appreciate that inversion of the equity from physical to non-physical 
means that our equity is tied up in people, in customer skill and information. And there's not a banker in the world that can ever repossess your skill or come in and put a lien on your knowledge. <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna take back your knowledge. And so we think that those are really resilient ideas, fundamental business resilient ideas that are a pathway in for young people to be able to access these vacant and abandoned and underutilized acreages, including ours. I don't know a single piece of land anywhere. Well, maybe there's a couple, but I don't know of one anywhere that's actually being fully utilized, where it's actually stacked to its complete ability, where the product that's being produced is value-added to its complete opportunity, where the diversity, the diversity of flora and fauna that can be produced in the different zones and the different intensities are fully leveraged. I don't know any place like that. All of us can stick another thing, another plant, a beehive. We can generate, leverage a little more of that space and that resource base and what I call fill up the land. And, of course, this is one that permaculture is so wonderful about is it's viewing the landscape from a sense of abundance and not scarcity. And so how do we fill it up rather than, you know, rather than, oh, it just, you know, it just can't produce an income. I've been to some small, very intensive scaled permaculture farms that were really integrated. And yet there was still a lot of space all over them. And it's one of the things that the farmers that I visited with and spoke to talked about, that there was always room for more that they could do with it because here was a place for a tree over this edge of a bed that wouldn't shade it out. And that would add to the agroecology of it and add more value to what they were doing at the farm. And it was interesting to visit those spaces because they were very financially productive as well by not needing as much space as they would with commodity crops. One farm in particular that I visited was producing, if my memory's correct, around $40,000 per acre. And that was allowing them to not only take in a living wage for their own time, but also for two on-farm interns through the season. Something that was considered a very good wage for the hours they were putting in doing skilled farm work. Yeah. And, you know, and people like uh, Jean Martin Fortier or, or, you know, Elliot Coleman, you know, some of these, you know, spin farming. Some of these guys are, you know, up there toward, uh, you know, toward even eighty to a hundred thousand dollars an acre. And what's amazing is, essentially, the tools, you know, the, the infrastructure might be there might be a hoop house, but that can be dismantled pretty easily. We've just we've erected and dismantled some, you know, more than once. And so that's not a permanent stationary piece of infrastructure. You can take it down, and it looks like you've never been there. And most of the tools are all. All hand tools, you know, you got a broad fork, you might have a little, uh, you know, walk behind two-wheel tractor, but all this can be done with essentially hand tools, and the whole farm, and I'm putting that in quotes, the whole farm as we know it, basically can go in a pickup truck and a little trailer. And when you have that kind of mobility, modular function, the whole land issue starts to fade away and the whole land capitalization issue starts to fade away in, in relevance. And as people overcome this issue of land access in order to get started, what kind of skills and mentoring do you feel that someone just beginning should work on? What should they look for and who should they try to connect with? 
Well, I'm a huge believer in the old classic, you know, apprenticeship, mentorship kind of idea. And, of course, you know, in the 15, 16, 1700s in Europe when all this was developed through the guilds with, the, you know, the apprentices and the journeymen and the masters and all this, you know, it was a long process. I mean, most of these were kids that started at uh, 12 years old or even earlier at 11, and they were there until, you know, 18 or 20 until they finally, you know, achieved mastership and could go out on their own. So, you know, today we don't have that kind of, uh, we could argue whether we should or shouldn't, but let's not do that today. But what we do have are lots and lots of experiential apprenticeship, mentorship kind of things. So I always tell somebody when they want to do something, I say, well, find someone who's really good at it and buddy up to them. It's not just farming, it be anything. And the institutional, typical college institutional setting, while that may be good if you're, if whatever you want to do requires a license, like a you know, physical therapist, doctor, that sort of thing, if it requires a license, then, you know, probably the institutional approach is, is the way to go. But if it doesn't require a license, if all it requires is functionality, experience beats a lot of things, you know, the old uh, 10,000 hours or 10 years, and I think there's a lot to say for that. So buddy up with somebody who's very successful at doing what you want to do, and uh, you'll be able to get way farther ahead quicker than if you go to some institutional setting. You know, we could say, well, you'll probably learn it quicker if you just jump in feet first and go by yourself, but, you know, you're going to have some really, really expensive mistakes. And uh, the beauty of a mentor is you can learn from the mentor what didn't work and then don't do that. <laughs> Keep yourself from those kinds of errors and mistakes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in all of that. So find your place that's doing what you want to do and buddy up to it. And I like what you said there because one of my mentors always said, that wisdom is the ability to learn from someone else's mistakes. And having that kind of relationship where someone can tell you everything that went wrong so you can avoid that makes a huge difference in being able to efficiently move forward rather than try to go and just do it on your own. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's why education is expensive. The school of hard knocks is really expensive. So this is why being out of debt gives you opportunities you wouldn't have otherwise. So many young people now are saddled with this horrible college debt that they have to go work for the man, or they, they feel like they do, in order to make these college payments, which saddle them then from an opportunity standpoint. They're very limited. I mean, if I have to make $50,000 a year just to stay alive, well, I'm not going to do an apprenticeship anywhere, and I'm not going to do a you know a lower paying job. And suddenly you get into that treadmill rat race, chasing that dollar. And before you know it, you know you're you're 35, you're 40 years old, and the most physically productive years of your life are behind you. And so, I frankly think that. We probably, ha in our society right now, probably, I'll, I'll just throw a, a number out and, you know, people can pick me apart, but I'm going to say that half, half 
of the people that are currently in college shouldn't be there. Half. That's a pretty high number. And, of course, the colleges will hate me for saying that, as if what I'm going to say is going to affect a lot of people. But I would say, in my experience, probably half of the people in our society in college shouldn't be there. Now, would they eventually, you know, merit by taking some, you know, some online courses and things? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what you really need is experience. Mastery, mastery requires repetition that comes from experience. You know, I can teach anybody how to gut a chicken in about 20 minutes. I can show you how to do it. But you don't become good at it. You don't become skilled at it until you've done an old stewing hen and a very young chicken, a big chicken and a little chicken, a chicken on a rainy day, a chicken on a hot day, a chicken in the cold, a chicken in the heat, a chicken that uh, didn't get a, a craw, you know, didn't get their feed taken away from them in time, a bird that did get their feed taken away from them, one of them that has there's one of them that picks well, one of them that doesn't pick well. There's a million different nuances of just gutting a chicken. And it's the, the repetition, it's the repetition in the experience that allows you to actually gain mastery. I mean, I can sit here and do a, a how to build a compost pile. I can do that very, very quickly. You know, carbon, nitrogen, we, you know, we get our greens, we get our browns, and we, uh, microbes, and moisture, and oxygen, and fluffing, and, you know, we can do it. But boy, mastering a compost pile building virtually takes years to do it with different kinds of materials, different kind of climates, different kind of, of, uh, hot time, cold time, shady area, sunny area, and all the different shades of, you know, sawdust, wood chips, straw, hay, corn fodder, corn husks, peanut hulls. I mean, there's, you know, leaves. There's a million different nuances to it. And to see, you know, too hot, too cold, fire fanging, good mold, bad mold, good smells, bad smells, you know, from pickling to humus, to all these things. And it's the repetition. It's the repetition. And, you know, we're coming into football season here. And, you know, that's how many reps have he had? That, that's repetitions. It's, it's all about executing the repetition. And so farming is no different. It's executing the repetitions day after day and season after season that creates mastery. And, sorry, you just can't Google experience. doesn't happen. I think it was Michael Jordan who said that every shot he made during a game he had to miss 10,000 of in practice. Wow, that's a good one. I have to remember that one. I hadn't heard that one. That's a good one. <laughs> With what you outlined, I think about my own compost failures and when something went anaerobic because I added too much freshly cut grass that then kind of molded together into a wet, sticky mat or through all the years of becoming a podcaster and doing interviews, knowing what questions to ask at the right time to guide a conversation in a direction. All the times that things have gone wrong, but being able to find ways through editing and the post-production in order to get something that's still usable, that all of these things we want to engage in as human beings really are skilled activities. So it takes time and it takes experience to build up what's necessary to truly be good at what we do. Yes, that is well said, which is why you want to begin to participate as quickly as you can in what you want to do so that you can start that, that testing period. I do this all the time with people that don't get, for example, our 
management-intensive grazing, where we, we move the cows every single day to a new paddock. Say, so, well, man, you really, you know, I mean, regardless of the ecological, environmental benefits and all that of, of it, I, I always respond and, and say, look, if you're moving them once a week, you get 50 tests a year. That's 50 tests a year. If you're moving them every day, you're now testing yourself 365 times a year. Look at the rapidity of your understanding whether you're getting 50 tests a year or 365 tests a year. You're on an accelerated pathway to skill when you're getting that many tests. And then, of course, you know, and of course, a lot of people don't move them at all. So you never get tested. And so jumping in there very early and testing yourself with whatever it is that you're, you know, you're working on will accelerate your, your mastery trajectory. And I like where we've gone in the conversation so far, but with a bit of time that we have remaining, can we shift gears and focus on a listener question real quick? Sure, sure. All right. In setting up this interview, I asked the audience about what they would be interested in hearing from you. We've covered a lot of that in just this overview of how do we get started, what things to look for, but one question that came up that was really interesting that Thomas asked was, what are Joe's thoughts on the role of media in regenerative agriculture? And should more farmers be as outspoken as you are? Well, the second part is easy to answer. Should more farmers be outspoken? Absolutely. Farmers tend to be pretty, oh, I'm just a farmer. You know, we we tend to be fairly self-deprecating, if you will. And so... In my new book, for example, I have a whole chapter on, you know, on when we start defining what are the successful attributes of a, of, of a farm business. One is that the farmer reads widely and eclectically. And I, I make a point in there that, you know, it, look, if we're going to be considered professionals, if we're going to break this stereotypical redneck hillbilly D student farmer idea, we can complain about it all day to our farmer friends, you know, get the, the Rodney Dangerfield get, get no respect. We can complain about it all day, but it's not going to help anything if we're just complaining among ourselves. What we have to do is do something different. That's what I'm, I'm such a big proponent of reading all sorts of things, you know, business, history, self-help, self-improvement, permaculture, the whole thing. One of the problems with all isms, whether it's biodynamic, permaculture, holistic management, one of the problems with all the, the systems and isms is that they, they tend to become ingrown. You know, it's almost like a cult. We've we found the religion, you know, and, and I'm just going to follow this guru. And it, we actually too often become more myopic in our view of things as opposed to being more broad-viewed. So read things you disagree with. Read from Wall Street Journal to Acres USA. I mean, on my desk, there's, you know, here I'm just looking at, the, I've got the official pork industry pork checkoff report. You know, I get it. I have no idea how I got on their mailing list, but I don't throw it away. I, I read through it, and it's amazing to actually read straight from the, instead of the horse's mouth, the pig's mouth here, how they think, what they do. And I, and I get gems i get wonderful material here can you imagine what they say so i'm not quoting 
my tribe about them to my customers, I'm able to actually go right in, look at the advertisement, look at the ed- editorial, and quote it as first source material in my apologetics to my customers, to a media inquiry, to whatever. And so be broad, be eclectic in your reading and in, in your information gathering and spend a lot of time doing it. You know, the Kardashians, you know, they'll take care of themselves. You don't need to know anything about the Kardashians. I mean, it'd be good to know that they exist. They're still on the front page of People magazine. But other than that, you don't need to know any more about the Kardashians. So read widely, expose yourself widely. And then if you become a font of information and, you know, people who, who read widely are interesting people to be around because they, they have a lot of different kinds of information and people that are interesting to be around are good conversationalists and journalists love them because they bring a perspective i don't know how many times i do a a media interview and the journalist you know gets done and says wow i've never heard or thought of those kinds of dots being connected or that perspective and uh, i'm not trying to you know praise myself i'm just saying it's unusual to have people who are well-versed firsthand in what the enemy is saying and what our friends are saying. Read your enemy. Know your enemy. That's uh, Sun Tzu, right? Is Know your enemy and know who it is and how to articulate what they're doing. Should we involve the media more? Absolutely. I mean, the media, it's the doorway. It's the doorway into the culture. It's the springboard, the diving board, if you will, into the pool of public opinion. And so we need to court them. We need to know how to make press releases. I mean, we we make press releases. Now, of course, we have Facebook, we have social media that occupies a lot of these areas that we used to do, you know, 40 years ago. But it's the same thing. You know, it's knowing how to make interesting material. But it all starts with having something interesting and provocative to say, which means you've got to be reading, you've got to be aware of more than the average bear. And so that's where it starts. So I'm, I'm not going to dwell on techniques for involving the media as much as I am trying to create an understanding that there's a foundation here. There's a foundation here that if you become an interesting person, because you are interesting in knowledge and information, then I think generally the opportunities for public expression of this interestingness, if I may, will flow naturally out of, out of your interestingness. I mean, again, it's a little bit like permaculture. You know, we go to the foundations. We go back to the patterns. And if we get the patterns correct, they make a very interesting place. An interesting place attracts people. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's productive. But it starts by following those patterns. And so the pattern here for an interesting person is an interesting input. So input interesting, and the output will be interesting. And what you just said is... One of the secrets for me, for having interviewed such a diverse range of people, 
within and without the permaculture community from scientists to business leaders to people who are starting farms is that I spend a lot of my time consuming, well, I don't really want to say consuming, but engaging with as much material and media as my time allows, from the books that I'm reading to the conversations that I'm having both by choosing who I interview, as well as what I listen to with my children. Like if we're on a long car trip or something like that, the podcasts that I find that give me this diverse view from things like existential philosophy to class issues in America, or the history of myths and cultural lore, that all of that provides a base from which Rarely am I in a position where someone mentions something that I, I don't have at least some little tidbit on, or understanding of, or a personal experience that I can then relate back that continues the dialogue and drives the conversation further. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a real gift. That is a, a real gift and a treasure. And, and you are a treasure for understanding that and being able to connect dots that people wouldn't normally connect. You know, we all have our own little, um, you know, laziness, <laughs> and, and we're, you know, we want we want somebody else to feed us, and so you have to create a habitat. You have to create a habitat in your habits, in your life, that puts you in a place of credible communication in the tribe, and the people, the people who learn, who know how to communicate, you know. I routinely have, you know, moms with little, you know, six-year-old in tow and, uh, or, you know, six to ten years old, you know, my boy, my girl, uh, you know, wants to become a farmer, you know, what's your advice? <laughs> and I, of course, I, you know, I, I enjoy doing a little bit of shock value stuff anyway, and so I'll just say, well, join the local uh, theater group, drama, learn how to be theatrical, dramatic, tell stories, communicate, because communicators you know, lead their, lead their movement. All movements are led by communicators. Look at Martin Luther King. Communicators lead, you know, Abraham Lincoln. And so if you want to move a society and move a culture and, and encourage, you know, your movement, be the communicator. I also find, though, that that helps us break out of our echo chamber by bringing in these various views, and that allows us to connect better with people. That rather than arguing about the... 1% we don't agree on, that we can engage with each other on the 99% that we do. Yes. Yes. Well said. Well said. Yes. We're never going to agree with somebody. I mean, if you talk to somebody long enough, you're going to come to a little point of, you know, seeing two different sides of a coin. But one of the beauties of broad reading is that you actually learn. This is one of the things that I appreciate from my high school and college debate experience. We go to a tournament and these were normally these were especially as you moved up the the ladder of of uh, you know proficiency, uh, got into the higher levels. They were all what are called switch side debate tournaments, which means if the preliminary rounds were six rounds, you debated three of those rounds affirmative and three of those negatives. Of course, on the same round, so you'd you'd go into round one and be affirmative, go into round two and be negative, go into round three and be affirmative. Yeah, all right. And uh, here you are, you know, on exactly the same resolution, and you're you're switch siding and. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate that in my life today, and I have some pretty strong opinions, but it does give you a deep appreciation for the other side. You know, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example. This is a good example, I think. Let's take Monsanto. I mean, boy, you know, I mean, they are so, I mean, the world according to Monsanto, that book, I mean, they're just, 
you and I probably agree they're just, we almost want to say they're evil. But you know what? Monsanto is full of people who really deep down believe they are saving the world, feeding the world, that you and I want to deprive the world of abundant GMO corn, and the worst of them think that you and I want half the world to starve to death because, you know, we can't begin to produce enough food the way they do. And so, you know, where I have some of the biggest disagreements with friends is when they just want to demonize, just a pox on those evil, terrible... No, 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 no. They are as sincere and well-intentioned as you and I are. Believe me, they are. Because the second you box them in and question their intentions, that their intentions are evil, they just want to, you know, be terrible people on the planet. As soon as you box them into that, you box yourself out of the discussion and you actually reduce your credibility in the big system. And so giving even our, our worst enemies the benefit of the doubt, I mean, the North Korean leader, you can disagree with him, you can say he, you know, he's murdered people, blah, 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 you know, all this, you know, as if nobody here in our country, the CIA or whatever, has ever done that. But the fact is, he truly wants the best for his people. Trust me, he, he does. I know people who've gone into North Korea. He wants the best people, and we can really disagree. But as soon as you start demonizing his intentions and disrespecting, you've just closed the gate on change, on possibility. And so I think your point is extremely well taken, and I deeply appreciate this notion that we read with respect and treat with respect the people that we most vehemently disagree with. Otherwise, we box ourselves completely out of the discussion, and that's not helpful for anybody. And this is a line that I'm sure we could continue on for some time, but I have you at the end of what we had agreed to for our time together today, as always seems to happen so quickly when these conversations get rolling. But before we draw the interview to a close, I would like to ask you for any final thoughts that you have for the listeners. The main thing is whatever you're doing, you're, you know, you found your passion, you found your true north and you're, and you're doing, you're working on it. You know, my encouragement is always to persist through the slog. People ask me, you know, what's been the secret to your success? I say, look, I'm not smarter than anybody. I don't work harder than other people. I feel like a lot of our success was that we just, we were just too stubborn to give up. And I think there's a lot to that because you know, tomorrow might be a hurricane. There might be economic collapse. There might be who knows what. And the ones who end up succeeding are the ones who got up one more time when they fell down. The opposite of success is not failure. The opposite of success is quitting. Anyone who has succeeded has failed just as many times as the one who didn't, except the last one. You know, except they got up that last time. And so my encouragement to folks is, you know, if you're really committed and doing what you want to do, where you want to be, then stay with it. Don't give up. Stay with it. And you will become skilled. You will become a master. You will work through those things. And it's always darkest right before the dawn. And so in that slow of despond and in that downtime, Find something within yourself to give it one more crack 
And lots of times, that's the crack that will be the breakthrough that will move you to mastery. Well, thank you for that, Joel. And thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And that was Joel Saladin. You can find out more about him, including his latest book, at polyfacefarms.com. The website that he mentioned run by his daughter-in-law to connect farms and people interested in farming is eagerfarmer.com. If you'd like to read Joel's book, Everything I Want to Do is Illegal, and learn more about his Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist views, I have a giveaway for a copy over at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. That giveaway runs through February 25th, 2020. You'll of course find links to that giveaway and the other resources mentioned in the show notes. Stepping away from this conversation, I'm reminded that I am not a farmer. Though I come from a family that farmed for many years in Pennsylvania and then Southern Maryland before my great-grandfather lost the farm in the Depression, my parents moved me in a direction as I got older that I would not be on the farm or of the land in the way, in particular, that my father and his father were before me, having rebuilt the family farm during the late 1940s and early 50s. But then, for everything that they raised, still being off the farm to support it. My father, grandfather, and uncle doing construction and building houses. And in one particular case, a well-known donut shop in my hometown of Hagerstown, Maryland. And even though I'm not a farmer, that there's still room for mastery for any of us who are practicing permaculture, that we should dig in and get really good at those things that we're called to, whether that's as a communicator or someone who practices in the land, a teacher, a designer. And I say that knowing that, you know, those are the normal outlets for people who are practicing permaculture right now in the world as it is, but that we can take the ideas of permaculture and adapt them and use systems thinking and everything that comes with it wherever we are, whatever we do. From an accountant to a Zamboni driver, there's a space for this holistic approach to human systems and anything we do. And then as we continue to work down through those ideas to find the ways that we can get better at what we do, that we can be experts in our task. And being an expert doesn't mean that we're the best in the world, because there can only be so many of those. But we can be the best version of ourself that does this work, whatever it is. And as we do that, get good at it, get known for it, that we can take on others. Because I do agree with Joel that for many folks, college is likely an unnecessary expense if there are other ways to accomplish our dreams, desires, and goals. I remember sitting in my math placement tests during summer orientation for the school that I went to on my first go-round. And the professor who was there, Dr. Tsutsui, said to all of us, look at the person to your left. And if you see them graduating from college, then good luck, because you're probably not. 
as at that time 50% of people who started college as part of that freshman class would not be there to graduate four years later, if we were even able to graduate in four years' time. And for me as practitioners, as much as I love formal education, though I joke with some folks who I know that, you know, I would like to be the Reverend Dr. Scott Mann, Esquire, MD, and just keep going back to school every decade for something a little bit further down the line. I do understand that it's not for everyone. And that as we build the world that we want to see, as we create something that is wholly different and completely ours, that we need to consider the alternatives that are available to us. With education, with land access, with the way that we decide to live, intentionally, through co-ops, co-housing, however it may be, the way that we use resources, with car shares and bike shares, deciding not to have children, choosing not to fly, all of these myriad decisions that each of us are willing to undertake now as individuals, add examples and models for ways that we can do things differently, right here, right now, where we are. And so that, in a couple of generations those people who we will never meet can be living completely differently from what we might begin to imagine today. So those are my thoughts coming out of this conversation with Joel and where I happen to be at the moment. What do you think about what Joel shared with us about farming, experience, and mastery? I'd love to hear from you, so go ahead and get in touch. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com 717-827-6266 or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend your days creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.